0: You're listening to The Perch Pod from Perch Perspectives. Hello, listeners, and welcome to another episode of The Perch Pod. As usual, I'm Jacob Shapiro. I'm your host. I'm also the founder and chief strategist of Perch Perspectives, which is a human-centric business and political consulting firm. Joining me on the podcast today is my friend, Radu Magdan. He's the CEO of SmartLink Communications. He's a global analyst, consultant, trainer. Think tanker, a former prime ministerial advisor in Romania and Moldova, writes all over the place all the time if you're interested in things Eastern and Central Europe. This episode's gonna be a little shorter than previous episodes. I wish I could say that was by design and that we wanted to experiment with whether you guys would rather have a 30-minute episode rather than an hour plus long episode. Uh, but the fact is, Rodu's a busy guy and he had things to do and we only had 30 minutes to get together. So I'm super appreciative of him making the time. Maybe if, uh, if you could send us your thoughts about the podcast at info at perchperspectives.com, whether you like the shorter format, whether you prefer the longer format, a good book you've read lately, anything else, uh, you can email us there. Hopefully you might want to email, email us at info at perchperspectives.com too. If you want to get in touch about the consulting services uh, that Perch offers corporations, governments, uh, investors across the board, helping them deal not just with geopolitical risk, but also capitalizing on opportunity, Uh, not being so reactive to everything that's always happening in the world, but getting ahead of it, knowing what's going to happen, knowing what the issues are ahead of time and planning so that you're not caught flat-footed. On that note, just two little things that are on my radar here. Uh, It's Wednesday, February 24th. This podcast will be appearing in about a week and a half. Uh, but two things i just wanted to talk about real briefly before we dive into the conversation with radu uh the first is that this week was a big week in brazil um yair bolsonaro the president in brazil uh basically fired the ceo of petrobras who he appointed just a couple of years ago uh, and put in a former defense minister and brazilian general to be in charge of petrobras um that's a big deal Bolsonaro has this reputation, and he's—it's he's well earned—of being crazy and all over the place with his statements. Uh, but he's been fairly cautious about what he says about Petrobras, which is Brazil's state-owned, uh, state-owned oil major. For those of you who don't know, um, and has always sought to to show that he's not going to interfere in Petrobras's actual pricing or any of its daily operations. Um, he was the one who appointed the previous CEO, in part because. Um, That person was for privatization and for deregulation and all these sorts of free market things that Bolsonaro talks about all the time. I think we're seeing a shift, though, because Bolsonaro's poll numbers are finally starting to go down. And I think they're going down uh, because the Brazilian government has been talking about um, going back on cash handouts to help folks with COVID-19. They might also be going back towards handouts because of the negative backlash there. And also because 2022 is not that far away, as crazy as that is to say, and he's got elections coming up and he doesn't want to meet the same fate as previous Brazilian presidents who just got shown the door. I think the point here, no matter what happens with Petrobras in the next two weeks, probably the stock price will recover and everybody will try to make it seem like things have gone back to normal. They're already trying to do that in Brazil right now. The bigger issue here is I think we're going to move from Bolsonaro as this sort of free market crusader to Bolsonaro as the populist that he really is deep in his bones, the populist that was able to garner enough political support in Brazil to become the president and wants to have another tie, uh, another go at it. Um, I think Brazil politics in Brazil is going to look a lot different uh, as Bolsonaro makes that shift from governing with those free market ideological principles in the ether to you know, what is actually going to increase political support at the polls. Those are the, it's the pitfalls of democracy; it cuts both ways. Uh, The second thing is that there was a report about a week ago now in the Financial Times that talked about China um, restricting the export of rare earths, rare earth elements um, to various countries in the world, especially the United States. Um, And this set off sort of a fire alarm of different folks who were saying that China wanted to use its leverage unfairly against the United States. And I just think that that media narrative is wrong. And I said this in the Perch Perspective newsletter. But if you if you aren't a subscriber to the newsletter or didn't get to didn't get a chance to read it. My point on this is my general point about China all the time. Um, A lot of external observers attribute Chinese behavior to, I don't know, like a a desire for world domination or that there's something inherently broken or even evil about the Chinese political system. Uh, In some sense, those are questions above my pay grade, but I think a lot of what happens in China and a lot of what determines China's behavior is what's happening inside China not China wanting to take over the world, not any of the stuff that gets talked about most often. It gets talked about because that's a good, easy headline. It's much less sexy to say, hey, China's actually consuming more rare earths itself, and it has also made it a priority to improve the environment. And refining rare earth is actually, it's a really destructive process for the environment and for climate. Um, And the combination of those two things means that China wants to keep the the rare earths that it's mining for itself and not to export them abroad so that's less about punishing anyone and less about using it for leverage and more about china becoming more technologically advanced caring more about the environment and climate on a domestic basis and thinking about how to be more self-reliant when it comes to its supply chains when it can be um Those nuances are really, really important when you're thinking about risk, when you're thinking about supply chains, because a country that is dealing with a lack of supply is going to behave much differently than a country that is thinking it is threatened from a national security basis or a country that is trying to be ambitious and spread its power or its influence throughout the world. This is also the point where I should point out that rare earths, it's a terrible name because rare earths are not rare. They're all over the place. The problem is it's just, it's really costly and environmentally destructive to refine them. And that's why you're seeing different countries because they're worried about um, the instability of supply from China are investing uh, in making sure they have domestic supply. The United States did this back in the late 2000s, early 2010s. um, And there was actually a little bubble um and some companies that were mining and refining rare earths in the united states only for it to collapse because the chinese started exporting again and drove the price down Uh, you've seen the united states invest money in domestic production of rare earths now you've seen this in countries throughout the world australia also has a lot of rare earths and refining capability so again this is one of these stories where supply chains are shifting supply is shifting and you're seeing the marketplace adjust to that And if you just focus on these headlines about China taking over the world or China clashing with the United States, you actually miss all the forces and the substructure that are causing these blips that we're seeing on the top of the wave. Um, So that's just a very, very small example, but it's the sort of analysis that we do all the time. Um, We separate the noise from what's actually going on and we give clients and sometimes listeners and readers of the newsletter that perspective of what we think is actually driving market conditions are actually driving behavior at the government state or even corporate level okay that's probably quite enough for me check us out at perchperspectives.com sign up for the newsletter leave a review on the podcast share it with your friends write to us at info at and enjoy the conversation cheers take care we are all right we're recording Radu thank you for making the time and I know we've got a hard stop so let's just dive right into it well first of all you're you're I think you're the first person in this podcast history to be recording in from from Transylvania what are you doing in Transylvania out there huh uh,
1: I'm doing business uh, I'm I'm Marine I'm um, based in Bucharest but Transylvania is part of my soul also because I have a maternal grandmother from uh, from this region but separate from that also because outside Bucharest Transylvania is the best place to do business uh, uh, in, uh, in Romania. And I think there is a lot of potential from this perspective. And um, here I am talking, it's true, geopolitics, not business with you. But nonetheless, it's it's a good place to, to do a pod from.
0: Well, and I'm, my whole career is built on the idea that geopolitics does affect business. And uh, there's not, well, I'm sure there are other, I won't say it's the most obvious case, but uh, Romania has a front row seat for this. I mean, you guys are are right in the middle of a lot of different things going on. Well, I I guess I'll throw it over to you. I mean, one of the things we talked about um, before getting on this podcast was just sort of the idea of great power competition. Um, How are you feeling as a Romanian about what's going on in the EU? What's going on in relations with Russia, China, the US? Just kind of what's the 30,000 foot view? Here's how I feel right now.
1: It's it's a pretty it's a pretty dynamic environment. I think that uh, uh, from a lot of perspectives, a lot of the people, not only Romania but also across the world, in a way, missed the '90s. Uh, you know, uh, and not necessarily for the pop music, you know, or for the charts and MTV and so on. Although we we did get some lovely imports back in the '90s, which changed our mindset for the better. You know, but I would simply say that the '90s were much simpler. Uh, for us, the '90s were also a transition, but it was, uh, you know, which uh, for specifically for Romania, which uh, bared fruits in the 2000s by us joining the EU and NATO, NATO first uh, and uh, then the EU. Uh, but for the moment, I would say, like a lot of other countries in Eastern Europe, ourselves are actively curious to see what will happen in the months to come. Uh, it doesn't mean that we're passive, uh, like everybody across the world. We're pretty much busy vaccinating people, you know, uh, with all the procedural delight uh, and all the conspiracy theories. Uh, at uh, at the same time, uh, in parallel, I think that, for Romania and other countries in Eastern Europe, we have been hit less than uh, on the economic front. And I think also speaking of this curiosity about what the future holds is linked to the fact that, okay, we witnessed in the past few years great power competition. And for us, this is interesting from a dual perspective. First, because we have a strong relationship with the U.S., which we plan to keep, as long as you plan to keep it as well. Uh, And uh, separate from that, we're part of the youth, Uh, which means means that it's, in a way, you have a dual mindset. Uh, You want to be, you know, you're, You're really a big fan of the transatlantic relationship as a Romanian or as a Pole or or other countries in the region. At the same time, you understand that the world is increasingly complex. So let's just say, from this perspective, uh, we really did salute the fact that America is back. At the same time, America, like Europe, like other countries, um, great powers, you know, middle powers, aspiring powers, you know, all of us for the moment are, on the one hand, busy with enough problems at home on the health front, on the economic front. And perhaps I would also say we may be witnessing a different kind of competition in the next few months and years. Recovery competition. How fast are we actually recovering? Who's the first to recover? Uh, are we going to score points out of the recovery? Yeah. Because like in each crisis, you know, there is opportunity. But boy, there are also a big, co- there's a lot of, uh, uh, I say, a cocktail of crisis facing us in the months and years. to come. <laughs>
0: Yeah, I'm not sure it's a cocktail I really want to drink right now. I prefer my crises a little less mixed up. But I have to ask about the transatlantic relationship because uh, it seems to me that things have changed, well, I don't want to say irrevocably between the U.S. and E.U., but the last four years was really tough on U.S.-E.U. relations. There was basically a, a U.S. trade war against the E.U. the same way there was against China. But the deeper point, it seems to me, is that Romania is still so economically dependent on the German export machine. And it might it might be so that Poland and Romania are still happy about their relationships with the US, but it seems to me that everything that's coming out of Berlin, everything that's coming out of Paris, is that the EU needs to be, not sep, not uh, not break the transatlantic relationship, but needs to be self-sufficient, needs to be sovereign, needs to be thinking in terms of how it handles its own things and not relying on the US or anybody else. So do you feel like Romania is more on the Poland side, which still is gung-ho about the US strategic relationship because of concerns about Russia? Or is Romania more about... You know, seeing the prevailing winds coming out of Germany and making sure Romania is part of whatever the EU is doing to move forward to address these cocktails that you're talking about
1: I think uh, what history has taught us you know particularly as Romanians uh, we had the privilege of being at the crossroads of three empires uh, our Polish <laughs> allies have had the joys of periodically dealing with two empires you know who periodically met on their soil unfortunately now, uh, we had for example had the Ottoman Empire we had the Russian em- uh, Empire you know and we had all the- austro-hungarian empire so uh, in our case and you can also see that in our provinces you know the i wouldn't necessarily call them disparities but the nuances some of the differences and, and so on has also taught us this time as a unitary uh, state to be increasingly flexible and agile and i would i would say from this perspective uh, romanians are mostly tactical uh, so uh, there is no doubt about it on the security side. There is, there is nobody on, on a, by this, I mean no state, you know, or no other entity, uh, alliance, whatever you want to call it, which, um, from our perspective matches our uh, U.S. strategic partnership. So these things are here to stay. It seems I would like to put uh, something on your radar and on the radar of, of the people who are listening to us. I think that also on the economic front, although if you count the numbers, and when I say the numbers, I mean data released by our national bank uh, last uh, last autumn, uh, um, we have seen a certain change in, in charts, in the sense that one of the, I think one of the claims which sometimes is being done in Eastern Europe is the fact that uh, US economic presence is not as strong as it should be or as it could be. But the truth is for us, it's a bit different. Uh, the surprise provided by our national bank is that the national bank started looking at the investment from the country of actual investment so for example if before you would have if before this autumn you'd have an investment coming from the netherlands but it would be an american investment initially no it would be counted as a dutch investment but now the national bank said like Mm. let's look who is actually investing in romania you know Uh, so from this perspective we had the joy to see that the us right now is in top five it's number five, it could grow further, you know, top four is Europe, Germany in this order, Germany, Austria, France, and Italy. Uh, And these top four Mm -hmm. make a little bit more than half of foreign direct investment in Romania. So clearly our security is linked with the US, whereas our prosperity, or at least at least half of our prosperity is Western European related. Um, Mostly on the car uh aside although there is a famous brand uh, managed by romania and france which is called dacia you know, uh, part of the renault group but it's true that in terms of let's say exports and supply chain say we're mostly part of the german chain uh of course we're going to be facing sooner or later in the months to come, depending on decisions in headquarters, you know, um, in Germany, in northern Italy, you know, in France, in Austria. If there's going to be cuts around the regional supply chain, um, we're going to have to, you know, take the cuts as well. Like the Slovaks will have to do it, you know, like the Hungarians will have to do it, the Bulgarians or anybody else on this chain. I think that what's really, really relevant in the months to come is how much do we mitigate risks and how much do we go for a concept for which I'm actively advocating via op-eds and not only, namely a global Romania. A global Romania is not, let's say, a major middle power, you know, uh, or uh, like a pinky in the brain. What do we do today? We do global domination via Romanian exports, you know. (laughs) No need for that, you know. But global Romania means, I would say, a revamped national energy in the sense of, let's business. It's complicated times, but nonetheless, we're flexible people. We have a very liberal-minded, uh, let's say, business uh, environment. We have had this very successful anti-corruption fight in Romania compared with other countries in the region. And I think this is something which would be saluted in, a, in an increasingly complex world, including by our allies in the U.S. and in Western Europe. Of course, like you mentioned from the very beginning, we're starting to be divergent, uh, primarily divergent in between, let's say, in the U.S. and Western Europe. And from this perspective, I would like to say something. You know, the past four years have been difficult in a transatlantic relationship, but I think they also gave us the opportunity to, in a way, set aside, beyond mutual blame games, some of the hypocrisies in international relations. Because the truth is, some countries wanted to do business with Russia. Uh, let's admit it, you know. <laughs> uh, and, uh, of course, if, if from this perspective... Uh, it, it makes
0: good sense to do business with Russia.
1: They, they have the cheap natural gas. I yeah, mean, and, and from if this perspective, in a way, it was... Easier with a president who seemed more turbulent on the other side of the Atlantic, because this way yourself you did not really have to justify any kind of uh, loss in terms of moral high ground. Why do we talk with the Russians or with or with the Chinese or, or somebody else? So I think with with the Biden administration, this is somehow bound to change in the sense that we may be returning to not necessarily a more conventional. Moral high ground, kind of transatlantic uh, uh, mutual uh, transatlantic um, policy, but nonetheless, I think that even Western Europe will have to be a little bit more attentive. And now it's also an issue of blinking. And I I don't mean blinkening, you know, but but blinking. You know, who blinks first? You know, in case uh, both the U.S. and Western Europe are serious about this transatlantic relationship, I think it's going to be a great four years or even more in case we, we just want to we're just waiting for who makes the first mistake then I think this is not going to be more productive and yes we are on the path to so called sovereignty
0: mm-hmm. well let, let's get down to some brass tacks then what what do you think about Nord Stream um, 2 it seems like the US I mean the US isn't happy about it but the Biden administration seems to be taking a more pragmatic approach I see the polls are not happy about it and some others in, in Europe are not happy about it but what is your view of of Nord Stream 2 and what the U.S. should be doing. What is the appropriate role for the U.S. in regards to Nord Stream 2? Is that a European issue and the U.S. should get out of the way, or is the U.S. concerns about creating that dependence on Russia a real one and a
1: threat to security
0: not just for the U.S., but for countries in the region? Yeah. Um
1: i don't want to do in there's there's a joke in romania about uh about um, a very wise reply from the rabbi you know who says like you are right and you are right you know and somebody says like but but rabbi both they can't be right you know and rabbi said like yeah you are both uh, you're also right you know uh, and from this perspective <laughs> let me let me uh, become myself a little bit of a rabbi and explain myself subsequently um as an um mm-hmm. as an analyst before having uh done consultancy work in big politics romania moldova the wider region after having understand understood more things in brussels my instinct would have been it's not okay for european uh energy security uh and bilateral deals should not you know uh flaunt uh, any kind of uh, uh you know arrangements at the continental level which are not necessarily, you know, may be useful at the bilateral level, but for sure for us as a club are not useful. I say this why, because after having worked in big power politics, I understand the idea of energy management. And I don't mean, you know, gas by energy management. I mean simply as a president, as a prime minister, as a country, at a certain moment in time, we have only, no matter the resources, no matter how important the country, including the U.S., who still remains country number one, Uh, there is a certain amount of energy that you have to pick up fights. Simply the, the problems which we have both at home and abroad to deal with are so complex that at a certain moment in time, you simply can't manage everyone. And if for the moment, strategically, in the US, you're looking at China, perhaps at least for the moment you know you don't want to start a russia front you know at least not not publicly uh, you know until you're stronger back at home and then together with allies you know you can both mitigate risks and perhaps do a wider coalition so i think from the perspective of energy management this project will go further now of course i'm simply saying this is my gut instinct you know it may not be necessarily be great for european uh, but mm. my feeling that for the moment amid pandemic health situation uh, economic concerns and so on, this project will go through simply because the energy we have for the moment for cat fights uh, in the region you know, is limited. You know? If it would be different times, if it would be a new administration with a great economy, you know, um, at, you know with, with a great chemistry from even, you know, 21st of January, uh, concrete projects on the transatlantic table, perhaps things would be different. But I think that's mostly wishful thinking. For the moment, everybody's in a way flirting with everybody again. And it's beautiful. We see the smiles. You know, we saw Munich and it's beautiful to see, you know, both America is back and the the Western European and Eastern European enjoyment. But beyond niceties, let us see what happens concretely in the months to come. And I think this is going to be the real test. As a Romanian, I would say, let's do what's right for the club. As a realpolitik analyst, I'm a bit reticent and I think that it's energy management is pretty low.
0: Yeah. And, you know, the country that is most threatened by Nord Stream 2, I think, is Ukraine. Um, they're the ones that really get screwed in this whole scenario. And they've been screwed for a while now, sort of caught between um, these two great powers. But I guess the the question I would throw back at you then is, you know, I don't think Nord Stream 2 is the red line. I don't think Navalny is the red line. Obviously, I mean, the EU sanctioned four officials. That was basically like doing nothing. Um, Is there a red line at which your realpolitik analyst person would shift and say, okay, if Russia does this, now we're outside of pragmatic. Now we need some kind of real response to say, hey, Russia, don't go beyond this particular point. Do you have even a red line of that conceptualized? Or do you think Russia is not even going to push that Russia is going to stay where it is? And it's
1: weak and it's trying to just claw together what it can in terms of leverage. Uh, Looking at the Russians, you know, like they're looking at us for quite a few centuries, you know, and we're looking at them for quite a few centuries. I would say that um, the moment they are nervous, they're becoming even more nervous or they're active, uh, they're acting even more nervous because from their perspective, you can't really show weakness. In a crisis moment, so they will uh, they will play even stronger, simply because they believe, uh, you know, that uh, in case they 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 be, they're becoming more rational, that would be a sign of weakness. So I would say that Navalny and other issues may, in fact, uh, encourage them. You know, of course, you know, uh, and this is going to be a gradual process, particularly since we're talking about a new administration to try to experiment new things in the neighborhood. You uh, you saw the Armenian episode uh, a few months ago, you know, and how they dealt with it. Of course, you could say different context, different time, you know, so Q4, uh, right, uh, compared to, to Q1. But nonetheless, I would say, speaking of red lines, that making eastern Ukraine, for example, hot again, uh, you know, uh, and, and not frozen, you know, that would be a red line for everybody. Um, so hopefully that will not happen. I think that for the moment, what Russia wants to do is what uh, Lukashenko managed to do. I saw, I think, a declaration yesterday or two days ago from the um, one of the most powerful uh, ladies of the moment, you know, from uh, from Belarus, who essentially said uh, we were defeated, uh, you know, um, by Lukashenko de facto, and uh, and I think that what the Russians are hoping is a silence moment after Navalny. And then things go back to normal, you know. And then we modify the constitution uh, uh, for the hundreds times in the in the past twenty years. And then we prolong a mandate till uh, uh, Star Trek uh, you know, <laughs> <laughs> president till uh, two zero eight four uh, or or whatever, and so on. So I, I think think they're hoping to get back to business. I'm not sure they want to provoke Biden thing, since I think in their own assessments, for, it's a, a moment in which America has to do at the same time energy management at home and at the same time can't show weakness on values abroad which is a very interesting position so i think the yeah. the russians will be will be bold but not too bold
0: have you um have you been watching that that uh, i think it's on netflix that show occupied mm-hmm. the 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 norwegian, the norwegian i think yeah, yeah the yeah. russians come in have you been watching this
1: yes yes yeah, at yeah. least have you been two watching or three episodes
0: yeah, I'm I'm a season in. We'll, we'll have to have you come back on and talk about it afterwards because that, that show is sort of a lesson in how the world, I think, sees Russia and sort of cuts to some of the things that you were talking about. All right, but let's not let's not make the, the folks in Moscow too happy and talk only about them. Yeah. Um, the other big issue, if you're global Romania, then you have to be thinking about is China. And I mean, China's a long ways away from Romania. Unlike a lot of countries, like Chinese trade, is not that big of a deal for Romania right now. It's, you, it's not in the top five in, in investment. It is a big deal for Germany. Germany is expecting to get export growth to China, and that's going to reverberate throughout Romania. But how do you think about China? Is that really just open for business sort of thing? Or is it a similar thing where issues in Xinjiang are really going to matter or issues of Chinese-Russian cooperation are going to feel threatening from a Romanian perspective? How do you, how do you walk through that line?
1: If you're turning back the clock a little bit, and we're becoming uh, Kissingerian, you know, and we're, we're looking back in the, in the 70s, back in the 70s, we used to have not a good one, but a great relationship with the Chinese. Uh, of course, back then, we were not part of NATO, right? We were part of the Eastern Bloc, not necessarily by our will. And uh, the dictator who back then was, uh, was a president of Romania was kind of a player in geopolitics, and he tried to position himself as an intermediary and as a leader of the non-aligned at the same time. So Romania back then was, in a way, doing what Hungary is sometimes trying to do right now, being part this time of EU and NATO, trying to be part of one block while playing... Uh, financially and with other and trade and other relationship with other players. In the Hungarian case, Russia and China, right? For me, different. First of all, because our economic exposure in terms of investments is mostly Western European. Uh, plus, uh, speaking of top, uh, top five American, what we do have with China is a big deficit, a big trade deficit um it does it's it's i'm not sure we even started brainstorming in the past few years on how can we close the deficit in the sense that what could we sell more back you know and this this is where eventually the chinese could have some leverage in bilateral relationship but we're not actively exploring that i think that romania even more sometimes than poland whether we're talking about nuclear power plants huawei 5g or other topics i would say that Um, essentially, we've been playing almost 100% with America on a lot of issues, including uh, 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 at the European level. It doesn't mean, nonetheless, that the smallest of the biggest or the biggest of the smallest, which we are right now after Brexit, we're country number six in the EU. (laughs) Such a country can prevent Mm. a kai. you know, the, the trade agreement which was sealed under the German new presidency, right? Of course, bigger countries with a bigger mm-hmm. say, bigger traction uh, got their way, you know? uh, So, I think we were constructive. We don't have the economic, ex, um, except for this, let's say, uh, unbalanced trade relationship. We don't really have a big economic exposure as regards China. Uh, but at the same time, compared with other neighbors of ours, I would say we haven't managed yet. And I hope that, speaking of global Romania, will be smarter in the next few months. Uh, we'll be trying to do more with the Japanese, more with the South Koreans, more with the Indians, perhaps. you know, Or... or other countries around the world where, by the way, you know, this is one of the biggest open secrets around the world. In fact, there is money in crisis. And people are willing, you know, to you know, do even more mergers and acquisitions, to place even more money strategically. And yes, and this is one of your team specialties, speaking of supply chains, people are rethinking their supply chains, including as regards as regards Asia, right? So, from this perspective, we could be beneficiaries. But I think the Romanian lesson, and perhaps not only for Romania but also for other countries, is that in the next few months we really need to get better together: politics, business, and I would say diplomacy. Uh, because uh, mm-hmm. whether whether we like it or not, we live in a complicated world in which. Um, it's no longer about the simple shake of hands. Okay, we did a lot of favors. We're a very constructive country to a lot of people. You know, you know. But at the end of the day, what does it mean in terms of investment? You know? uh, what can we do more? So I would say from this perspective, um, a partnership nudged uh, uh, by the U.S. and East Asian allies could be a way forward on investment also in Romania, particularly since this year we're supposed to sign a strategic partnership also with Japan. But let's see.
0: Hmm. Yeah, no, I, I agree with all that. Um, I know that you've got to get out of here soon. So l- last thing before we uh, let you get back to cutting deals in Transylvania. Um, the w- the country we haven't really mentioned, or you sort of alluded to it earlier, is Turkey. Uh, and in some ways, Turkey makes me more nervous when it comes to geopolitics than just about any country out there right now. And I might even include China in that list. Um, I, I don't like a lot of what I'm seeing out of Turkish politics in general. And you sort of talked about, you know, Poland has been caught between two empires. Romania's caught between three, and the Ottomans were always to the south. And the Turks are, I mean, they're doing a lot of stuff. They're fooling around in a lot of neighborhoods. They're looking at the Balkans. They're looking at North Africa. They're asserting themselves in the Mediterranean. Um, you know, there was that incident where they locked on to a French frigate in the Mediterranean in regards to Libya late last year, which calls into question whether Turkey's going to be a part of NATO going forward. Um, Are you nervous at all? Is that just another place for Romania to make deals and its historical sort of awareness of Turkey helps it there? Or do you feel like Turkey is encroaching that that Romania is going to be a front of sort of a front ground between the EU and this rising Turkish power to the south?
1: I would say we're, we're, in a way, a special case from this perspective, because bilaterally we have had, despite whatever happened, let's say, from the, the 1500s uh, till, uh, let's say, 1918, we have had uh, subsequently, uh, particularly after the after the revolution, democratization, we have had a very good bilateral relationship with Turkey. Uh, this no matter who was in power, uh, you know, uh, no matter the transition, both for them in the, I would say, in the 90s, 2000s, and so on. Um, mm. Romania, from this perspective, I would say, has been pragmatic. Um, uh, Turkey is, has also been pragmatic as regards Romania. Huh? Uh, looking at the, at the Black Sea, um, by far, the biggest two players are Turkey and Romania, followed by, uh, by Bulgaria, you know, also as regards NATO activities and so on. Um, Turkey looks at Romania differently uh, than it looks at Greece and Bulgaria because with us, the relationship is better including from a business perspective. Also, you have seen historically in the past decade uh, a lot of uh, Turkish businessmen who decided to have a family in Romania or to move with their families to Romania. Uh, it's an open country. A lot of people are coming from, from Western Europe, uh, you know, from around the world, but also from Turkey. And from this perspective, we have seen uh, growth in, in trade and and, uh, and not only. Could we be a player in the sense of some kind of a middleman, you know, or a middle woman, if we are Romanian, you know, uh, from, uh, from this perspective? We could be, you know. Um, but it's also about uh, the willingness of our bigger brothers uh, and sisters, you know. If we're talking EU, Germany has a great relationship with Turkey. Uh, You know, France, not necessarily, you know, and this is also for historic reasons, also because looking at Turkey's neighbors, there are are very strong minorities in France as well, who are uh, very active lobbyists, Uh, you know, particularly Armenians, they're very, very efficient and and strong in France, and... um, I would say, but as regards America, for the moment, I think America can have a direct line with uh, with Ankara, you know, even without Romania or 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 let's say Hungary or Poland or any anybody else. So from this perspective, the days of the '70s, in which sometimes in between the blocks, you know, uh, um, a country would be a great, uh, you know uh doing a great courtier service i think are pretty much gone uh, uh, big powers can speak with aspiring mm-hmm. middle powers because i'm i'm reading speaking of of media in turkey i'm reading periodically the opeds in daily Sabah and so on and uh, this middle power keeps popping up uh, and i think the great powers will be talking increasingly directly with middle powers without intermediaries in the next few months
0: thanks for listening to the latest episode of the perch pod If you haven't already, you can find us under the name The Perch Pod on every major streaming platform. Subscribe for downloads, follow us, all that good stuff. Uh, If you have feedback on this episode or on any episode, you can email us at info at perchperspectives.com. I can't promise that we'll reply to every single email that comes in, but I read every single one that comes in, and I love hearing from listeners, so please don't be shy. Uh, You can find us on social media. Our Twitter handle is at perchperspectives because we love a good pun. Uh, We're also on LinkedIn under Perch Perspectives. Most importantly, please check out our website. It's www.perchperspectives.com. Besides being able to find out more information about the company, the services that we provide, and even to read samples of our work, you can also sign up for our twice a week newsletter on the most important political developments in the world. It's free. All you have to do is provide your email address. And even if you don't want to do that, you can read the post for free on our blog. Thanks again for listening. Please spread the word about Perch Perspectives and the Perch Pod, and we'll see you out there.